0: Welcome to the REMS on the Air podcast, hosted by your partners at the US Department of Education's Office of Safe and Supportive Schools and its Readiness and Emergency Management for Schools Technical Assistance Center. If you're an old friend, you know us as the REMS TA Center, your National School Safety Center. Join us as we chat about key topics in school and campus safety, security, and emergency management with experts and partners from the field. Hello and welcome back. We are excited to host another Rems on the Air podcast. My name is Janelle Williams, Project Director for the Rems TA Center, also known as the Readiness and Emergency Management for Schools Technical Assistance Center. Today, I will be having a conversation with Guy Blizner of the Idaho School Safety and Security Program within Idaho's Office of the State Board of Education. In collaboration with his partners, Guy has supported various efforts to enhance the quality of assessments conducted in schools throughout their state. Assessments are such an important part of the planning process. They will be used to not only develop the initial plan, but also to inform updates and revisions to the plan on an ongoing basis. There are various types of assessments to consider in the context of emergency preparedness planning including capacity assessment, culture and climate assessments, behavioral threat assessments, and site assessments. Guy has experience supporting each of those assessment types, and we are so lucky to have him here to share some of the key lessons learned. So excited to have Guy Blizner here today for our REMS on the Air podcast episode Guy, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your role within the Idaho School Safety and Security Program?
1: I am, uh, at my heart, an educator. I was a high school coach and teacher for a number of years, went on, as many of us do, to the administrative level, and almost immediately became the Health, Safety, and Security Director in a mid-sized Idaho district. So I spent about seven years in charge of a district, and then as we developed the process here in Idaho. I moved from that into the state as, as initially as a pilot project using assessment as the driving process and then eventually into the program that was created by statute here in Idaho.
0: Awesome, and can you talk a little bit about how the program supports local education agencies with increasing their preparedness capacity?
1: Sure. Um, By statute, assessment is the driving tool we use, and we're required to do a full threat and vulnerability assessment of every school receiving state dollars in the state on a three-year rotating basis. But that is the start of the process, not the end. Once that assessment is done, we then work on an ongoing consulting basis with our local school districts and school boards to address the identified vulnerabilities. So we use a number of tools to do that. We are, we train with the BTAM process. We, I am the communications guy. We write unified communications plans in concert with our districts. We develop EOPs, work on initial response protocol, um, help them develop a safety committee process that works. And that's that multidisciplinary approach with educators, first responders, parents, members of the community, so that those processes not only keep children safe, but they are accepted and generally appreciated by our school's community in the area that they serve.
0: And would you say there is an ideal time of the year to conduct those vulnerability assessments?
1: Absolutely. And it starts when kids come back to school and it ends when children leave. We try and do an assessment based on the normal operating posture of a school, and schools do so many different things, normal's a little bit of a slippery term, but if they are having grandparents' day, I don't want to assess a school on that day because their operations are so radically different than their normal operational posture. So we try and look at a school as they would be in the 360 days of the 380 days they're in school we want to know what they look like as they as they wake up as children come to school as they move about the school as they go through those those things that they do recess lunch class change all of those things and through to the end of the day and watching as students leave and parents pick them up so that that normal operational day is what we're looking for without kids in a school they're just a big brick building
0: so true And in looking at what you document within those assessment reviews, would you say you're looking at not only vulnerabilities, but are there any other areas such as capacity of systems, staff skills, um, materials, et cetera?
1: Well, uh, our assessment is broken down into basically three components. We are very much assessing physical security. That's the hard parts, locks, doors, systems, those kinds of things. Um, we are very much looking at the operational platform, what they say they do. That would be their EOP, their initial response protocol, what's their threat assessment process, all of those elements. And then the last one is we look at that climate and culture piece. That's the the operational platform is what you say you do. The operation, the culture piece is what we in fact observe that you do. And so we're looking at that deviance from what you say to what you do as a vulnerability, because again, if you think you're doing something, but you're doing something differently, you're going to be vulnerable at that point. So that's the the process we use. It runs in a comprehensive high school to something on the order of 800 distinct and observable points. Um, A part of this is taken in conversation with, on a staff of 40, I try and talk to at least half the staff I always try and talk to a substitute because I want to know how they came in. I talk to volunteers who are in the building, and I want to know what their operational process is, their understanding of the emergency operations piece and their role. Um, I talk to those student support folks, counselors, nurses, psychs, speech, all of those folks who are also associated with that school but may not always be in residence there. So we want to know what that whole school community looks like and understands and how they can respond, first of all, how they're expected to respond, and second, how they can really respond based on their understanding, training, and background. So it's very much that kind of an approach. We're exceptionally holistic in the way we look at this. And you answered one of the questions
0: that I was going to pose during your, um, your response, and that was kind of looking at who you engage during the assessment process administrators, staff, um, you know, as well as it sounds like potentially students and anyone who um, plays a role in supporting some aspect of the before, during, and after phases of an incident.
1: Absolutely. And in some cases, we will, uh, I, you'll engage children at, at a level and students. And ask them questions, but very much of what we do is uh, I, I try and be as innocuous as possible and simply listen to the conversations, see what they see how they interact with one another, watch supervision and and I'm you know we gauge supervision by look for the number of uninterdicted naughtinesses we see. If I see a child do something that's inappropriate and a student supervisor talks to that child, fixes the problem, that's not an issue for me. It means we're doing what we're supposed to do. If I see those things going on and they're not addressed by staff, that becomes an issue for me. So again, it's it's very observational in the way they operate because very often what people think they do and what you observe they do are somewhat at odds with one another.
0: And I'm sure that training supports that as well.
1: Absolutely. We will, we will have those discussions. What kind of training have you had on this issue? What kind of training have you had on um, reporting students who deviate from baseline behaviors? We ask a lot of questions about how the, that information moves because, again, the, the communications piece is a critical element in not only emergency operations, but in all operations, if you do not have good communication, if the information doesn't go from the people who have it to the people who need it, you lose command and control. Thinking about um, communication
0: and in thinking about assessments, are faculty and staff typically aware that an assessment is going to be conducted in advance? And then following assessments, Are you communicating any of the findings or recommendations to support education agencies with perhaps updating portions or annexes within their um, emergency operations plan, for example?
1: Absolutely. Um, We start by notifying the superintendent that we will be in in their district over a given period of time. We ask that they notify their building administration because again, I I was in that situation. I don't want somebody wandering around that I don't know about, but we do request that they do not tell their staff. I have seen, we call it the dog and pony show. I've seen people do things that are obviously not the way they normally do business because they're not comfortable doing it. So it's, we we ask very much to be able to see those in a natural setting. So we ask that they don't notify their staff because again, I want to see how their staff, treats the chubby fellow who's wandering around vague and drooling in their building, but they know don't belong. When we do that, we do not display a credential. And we try and enter the building through other than the accepted main entrance. I want to be able to get in and wander around and see how they treat that that we, we call it the intruder assessment but it's the unknown person walking around in their building. I want to know not only how their staff treats it I want to know how the students treat that individual so we can gauge what the response would be if it were to take place. Following that we we write the report we have an we have an exit interview with administration before we leave giving them uh, initial observations and initial ideas on those areas that we saw. We follow that up with a written report and we try and come back after they've digested that written report and reiterate that. Often it's at a administrative meeting of the district or the elementary schools in the district, depending on the size. Many of our districts in Idaho are four, five, six schools in the district. So it's easy to get all the administrators together and then have that discussion about what did you see Did you see it commonly building to building or were buildings different from one another? So we have that process and we use it as the beginning of the consulting process. We often tell our administrators that we are the school safety, security, risk management consulting firm. They don't have to pay for. The state has already engaged us with that process. So we come back and help them identify. We do not not prioritize for them. That's not my role. We give them the, the identified vulnerabilities and we help them understand where that is. And we let they and their governance board determine where they're going to spend effort. We will point out what is kind of the low hanging fruit, what's easy to fix, what's an operational fix, what's gonna take some money and what's a capital outlay that's gonna take some spending. And then as they go down that road, we help with that process as well.
0: Thank you for walking that through. As you were discussing the kind of distinctions within school districts, um, one thing came to mind, and that is kind of, and I know it's going to vary from district to district and school to school, but what would you say are some of the most underlooked areas of a school campus or grounds, and how can site assessment help address those concerns?
1: Um. I'm an abject believer that if you don't have communication, you don't have command and control, and particularly in older facilities, older PA systems are failing, wiring may be failing, they may not be able to get replacement parts. So a PA announcement that's made in a school may or may not be heard everywhere. The other portion is all staff members, we believe, should be able to make that PA announcement if need be, and that's often not the case. And in some cases, failing PAs have been replaced with IP phones, you know, um, the internet-based telephone systems that give them an intercom, but does not do public address. It's not heard, it's heard at the station in a school or in a classroom, but it's not heard in the hallways, in the bathrooms, in the gymnasium and the shop and and those places. So intercom and PA, and and we help our boards and our facilities people and our administrators understand that intercom is not equivalent to PA and PA is not equivalent to intercom. So how, and the benefits and usages of each, but that lack of, of an immediate way to notify broadly, the entire population of a school is one of those areas that we see as a failure fairly consistently.
0: Thank you for bringing that up. I think it aligns with some of the conversations that we've had with state education agency partners recently and just looking at um, some of the challenges that may be experienced in managing communications and warning and looking at kind of the variety of systems that are available now to um, support that. And in some cases, the need to, as you mentioned, retrofit older buildings to um, Really enhance, you know, that capacity to communicate um, and warn the school community. Would you say that as a part of your assessments, you spend any time um, kind of looking at or monitoring social media?
1: We we have the capacity to help them monitor social media, and we will look at how that how social media monitoring is used in the district particularly how it's used in conjunction with the BTAM process. Um, A behavioral threat assessment of a student of concern. Note that I said student of concern, not student, not bad student, not, it's a kid that we're worried about, but that understanding what their social media presence tells us is a critical element. So we work with them on those processes as well. I do want to go back to one other thing on the communications piece. However, Janelle, I tend towards being a belt and suspenders kind of a guy. If you decide that you're going to deploy a communications emergency notification app on cell phone, that's a good thing. It doesn't replace PA. It can enhance PA, but it doesn't replace that public address system. Because if I'm the gym, uh, if I'm in the gym class and we're all out on the football field running, chances are nobody has their, well, the kids, some of the kids may have their cell phone. Chances are the coach doesn't. So, you know, what I'm I'm looking for is multiple layers of redundancy in that communications piece.
0: Very good point. And one additional thing that I was thinking about in the context of communications and in particular behavioral threat assessments, which you just mentioned, is some concerns um, that may be had about information sharing, and how are you, you know, managing or, or kind of um, mitigating any concerns around information sharing, either with local law enforcement, you know, or you know, between your program and the education agency staff within the school, et cetera.
1: Well, you know, we have we have both HIPAA and FERPA concerns in this. But that that multidisciplinary group looking at these elements and making structured professional judgment of that group based on what they know is a critical element. And that only develops as you develop the team and the team works together and begins to trust one another and that everyone on the team understands the confidentiality and the, the confidential nature of what they're doing. So we provide that, that training. And, you know, there are times that FERPA will be used as a, we can't share that because of FERPA. FERPA allows for those, those necessary um, sharing of information when there is potential, uh, serious potential for injury. You don't just say a kid's going to be maybe bumped and that's an issue, but, and that's very much on the educator side. So that comes with understanding both HIPAA and FERPA restrictions when they, when they apply and when they may not and what they apply to. So we do training on that as we do the training for behavioral threat assessment. The one thing I will note that BTAM as a process generally doesn't fail once the kid is, once the person of concern is in the process, we've identified them and we're doing with it where it often fails is the intake component. And that's a communications piece. We see deviance from baseline behavior at a classroom level. How does that information move and who gets it so that it can be looked at in the aggregate? A student, particularly a secondary student, may be in as many as seven classes in a day. They've got seven different teachers seeing them. The, The issue is if one teacher sees deviance and reports it, that child becomes, we, we say on the radar. If six different teachers reported in two days, Johnny's not only on the radar, but he's being addressed. So there's, there's that, that communications component of the movement of that information of who may it be of concern. So the intake piece is huge.
0: Yes, you're so right. And I imagine I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, that the intake piece, but also efforts to restore that student of concern back into the learning environment after an incident has been, um, you know, investigated and addressed, if you will.
1: Well, first of all, the, they may not be, need to be restored during the investigation. You don't necessarily pull that student out of the, the school context and certainly sending them home is not always the best option because we lose we lose optics on that student so and btam is behavioral threat assessment and management and management is the is the critical element there you have to manage that student ongoing if you just send them home you can't manage them so it's that management piece and the management piece may start at a at a fairly enhanced level and over time after reassessment, it lowers and it lowers and it lowers and the kid simply integrates back. Now that may require a alternate placement into a different educational environment, any number of things. But again, the, the goal is always to keep optics on that student and not, and serve their educational needs to the best of our ability while maintaining a safe environment for everyone in the building. Wow, and you just shared
0: some very important points. And I'm wondering if there are any other valuable lessons that you've learned just through your experience conducting assessments that you'd like to share.
1: Well, the first thing is do not spend a dime until you assess. I am an old educator at heart. It's always assessed before you treat. And particularly in the current environment, being aggressively marketed, you may have a tendency to knee jerk and do something to be seen to be doing something. And that's security theater. It's not, it's not increasing the safety and security of a building. So that assessment component as a first step is a critical piece and Idaho believed it was so important that it be done by an outside group that they created the office and tasked us as such. Um, Self assessment is always difficult and can be a little suspect. You live in the forest, you may not see the trees. So, but assess before you treat.
0: Well, thank you so much, Guy. As always, we learn so much during our conversations with you, and we appreciate all that you do to support school safety within your state. Thank you so much for joining this REMS on the Air podcast episode and conversation.
1: Janelle, thank you, and it's truly my pleasure, and I will tell you, we... Appreciate the support at the REMS level, back to us at the state level, and even more back to those folks who live at the district and school level. So thank you for what you do as well.
0: We appreciate you, guys, And thanks so much for tuning in today. Tweet us using the REMS on the air hashtag if you are addressing similar topics. If you have any questions related to our discussion today or want to learn more, send us your questions via email at info at remstacenter.org or give us a call at 1-855-781-7367. Access additional REMS on the Air podcast episodes and share this one with your colleagues by visiting the REMS TA Center's podcast page and clicking the share tabs along the left-hand side of your screen. Thanks for tuning in.